This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. So through our Advent series, we have been taking cues from Christmas carols and hymns that we sing through this time uh, to kind of highlight themes uh, that we hear throughout the Christmas time. Uh, and one of those themes that we hear a lot about is joy. Um, one of my neighbors kind of has like these big, um, really just two-dimensional like Christmas ornaments, you know, like these things here um, that say like peace, love, and joy. And actually, you're going to find it back here too. Uh, joy is down here. Uh, you see joy all the time throughout the Christmas season, all the time. And, you know, I think because we see it all the time, it, there's this normalcy that builds into it. Because we see it all the time uh, and it's used in so many different ways, we, we start to wonder, what is real joy? What is biblical joy? Is it the Hallmark Channel? Is it the Hallmark Cards? Is it that kind of surface level joy that still kind of touch on something that we all want? Or is there a deeper joy? And I hope that today we're going to learn more about this biblical joy and where it comes from. And I hope that today that we'll see that it comes from God himself. And specifically, it comes from God's righteousness and God's memory, his remembrance of us. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word, which comes from Psalm 98. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. This ends the reading of God's word. May it be joy to us by the power of his spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So we're talking about joy and how we find deep, biblical, everlasting joy. And it comes from God's righteousness and God's remembrance of us. So these will be our two points. First, God's righteousness. Um, I think the way maybe to, to better frame this is what prevents our joy? Because I think there's a lot of things that prevent our joy, but we can, we can touch on a couple that are gonna help us. Uh, one is when things aren't right. You know, this could be uh, as simple as like, my car didn't start this morning and so I had to jump it. Um, and it's just like, that's not right. And it kind of takes away a little bit of my joy because now like my morning's been thrown off, you know? Um, it can be as simple as when we forget to pack certain things on a trip. But there's also much more fundamental, uh, deep things that are wrong. Times when we've been seriously wronged. Times when we need to cry out for a judge to hear us. It needs to be made right. We need it to be made right. 
There's a story in the Bible that kind of highlights this, and maybe you've heard it. Uh, It's from the Old Testament. It's about two mothers uh, who gave birth to sons about three days apart, and they lived in the same house. Now, the one, one woman's son died in the middle of the night, and in her grief, she got up and she swapped the babies. And so the other mother awoke, grief-stricken as well, but only to come to find out that this wasn't her son that had died. It had been the other woman's. But now her son gone with the other woman, she's distraught. Not only has she gone through the emotional roller coaster of thinking that her son had died and then found out that he hadn't, now her son had been kidnapped. She needed to find a judge that would deliver with justice, righteousness, and equity. Now, there are many things that we could highlight about that story. But the fact that she needed a judge, she needed someone who could make it right, is the pinnacle that we're going to be focusing on. The woman with the living son in the story did find a judge that made things right. A judge who was able to adjudicate, discern what was happening between the stories of the she said, she said, and her son was returned to her, and the other woman punished. Now, can you imagine the joy that woman had at her son being returned to her, of something that was wrong being made right. This is the kind of joy that we're looking for from God's righteousness. Look at verse 9. All the way at the end of our passage, if you read through this passage, you just see joy flowing over everywhere. And that in verse 9, why are they so joyous? Because the Lord comes to judge the earth with righteousness Equity. Our God is a God who makes things right, who judges fairly. Our all-knowing God cannot be duped, cannot be bought, cannot be found sleeping, but will deliver his judgment with righteousness. And this is amazing news. This is amazing news. All wrongs will be righted, even the ones that overwhelm us, that we're not even sure could ever be righted. All the racism, sexism, abuse, and oppression, the abandonment, isolation, loneliness, the war, murder, neglect, and torture, all of the unrighteousness that has ever been will be judged. And that causes our hearts to overflow with joy. It caused the audience that was hearing and reflecting on God's judgment in Psalm 98 to overflow with joy. There was going to be righteousness again. Things were going to be the way that they finally should be. Romans 1 lists uh, some of the kinds of things that this judgment will be against. And I just want to read through this list. Uh, These people that will be judged were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. And the good judge has no tolerance for these things. Those who practice such things will be cast into outer darkness, the Bible says. And we have joy because it is sure to happen. And I think those of us that have experienced evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. We desperately know that longing. 
that longing for things to be made right. Truly right. It would give us so much joy. Um, I think what makes this a little bit difficult for us is that God holding people accountable shakes us a little to our core. We can read that list and it's easy for us to see, man, when that's done against me, yes, I absolutely feel it. But if we're honest with ourselves, we've also done a lot of those same things. And in fact, that list will continue with things like gossiping, slander, hating God. That list will continue with things of disobedience to parents. And Paul in Romans 1, when he's reflecting on this, he'll say, you know, he starts in some sense from the worst for us to be like, yeah, those people are going to get judged. And he goes to the, the ones that we've all done. Who can say that they've never disobeyed their parents? And he says, you too have practiced these things. Now, we're going to reflect on God's answer to that to his people in point two. But before I move on a little bit more, I just wanted to acknowledge that that's there. Because first, I think it is good and right as Christians for us to long that God's judgment does actually come on the evildoers in this world. It is good and right that we would take joy in God's judgment. We're going to talk about the fear that we might rightly have in a second, but it is good and right for us to have joy that God will make all things new that he will restore things to what they should have been. Every single thing that has ever happened as a result of sin, sin will be done away with. The disease, the death, the corruption of humanity will be righted, and those responsible will be held accountable. And this is good news. Even the disciples at Jesus, who the Messiah, the Savior, was coming, right? They knew Jesus was the Messiah. And they said, you're the one who's bringing this kingdom, right? It's good news that this kingdom is going to be here. The people who originally heard this psalm thought that the Messiah would be this person. Jesus himself admits that he will be this person. You remember he says that he'll sit one day on his glorious throne and he'll divide the sheeps from the goats. One is on his right hands and one's on his left. He would judge the world. And Jesus' disciples asked him time and time again if the time is yet, all the way to the time when he ascended into heaven. Because, you know, Jesus died on the cross, um, and then he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, and then uh, he ascended into heaven after that, right? And on the day that he ascended, his disciples again looked at him, and they're like, is today the day? <laughs> is the kingdom coming now? Are you going to do it? And this is the other hard part about God's righteous judgment, that we are so so strongly anticipating is that Jesus looked at his disciples and said, the time is not for you to know. And waiting for justice is hard. But Jesus said, be sure, I am coming again just as I left. And just like it was many thousands of years before God's promises to come to his people the first time were made true, just like the people that were originally reading this psalm had to continue to wait for Jesus to be born, we wait again for his kingdom to be brought in fullness and his righteousness, his righteous judgment to be on full display. That day will be a joyous day. 
and in our anticipation of it, for how sure God is at keeping his promises, we also overflow with joy. Of course, it is good news of great joy that God will judge with righteousness, uh, those wrongdoers in our life. But as I mentioned, right, um, if we reflect on that list in Romans 1, uh, we start to see ourselves in it. And so rightly, another thing that prevents our joy is actually our fear before God. You see, for us to have joy, of course, unrighteousness and wrongdoing uh, can't be done against us from the outside. But for us to have joy, we also have to know that we belong in this kingdom that is coming. That list that continues in Romans 1, gossips, slanderers, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This joyous news that God will judge all the truly evil, as, as the list goes on and on, uh, starts to transform for us into fear. Man, I've done these things. There is a good and right fear of the Lord. The Bible says that it's the beginning of wisdom, that we are supposed to fear the Lord. It teaches us that our place before Him, uh, before our infinite Creator, we are finite creatures. We need Him to come to us. It teaches us to correct humility before Him. But as much as we long to be with God, as long as we see ourselves on that list of wrongdoers, we understand that God's judgment is coming against us. God has a zero tolerance policy. When we hear Paul's word in Romans, you practice the very same things. We, just like his listeners, are cut to the heart. How are we supposed to have joy? How is this going to be made right? How are we going to be better? You know, um, you could read Psalm 98 and you could say, wow, they don't even like mention any of that stuff, you know? Uh, they're just celebrating the defeat of their enemies. Um, and you would in some sense be true, but there is a little hint. And this little hint uh, comes through how God thinks about them. You see, they acknowledge that they needed salvation in verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. And he has made his salvation known by what? By revealing his righteousness in the sight of nations, as we talked about in our first point. And also because in verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. God remembers his steadfast love and faithfulness. The only reason that the people in this psalm could rejoice so greatly at God's judgment of the evildoers was because they had been remembered by God. Notice that it isn't God promising steadfast love and faithfulness only if they return steadfast love and faithfulness, you know? Like, hey, I'll be steadfast, uh, steadfastly loving and, and uh, faithful to you as long as you keep my Ten Commandments. That's not what he promised. God simply promised that he would be loving and faithful to them. God promised that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And it is clear in the Bible, time and time again throughout the Old Testament, that the Israelites didn't have what it, take, what it took to make it happen. They didn't have what it took to be God's people. And in Romans, those verses that we read, Paul's saying the same thing over again. He's saying, we could start with these evil ones. You're going to be like, yeah, God's going to judge them. But then by the time we get on here, you're like, God's going to judge that too? <laughs> Uh-oh, 
Uh, I don't have what it takes. What am I supposed to do? Will I be remembered? You see, somewhere along the lines, uh, we, we, we use this language of believers, right? Like Christians are believers. You guys have heard that, that phrase like, yeah, we're, we're believers. Somewhere along the line, I think believers stopped believing in the promises of God in, in His steadfast love and faithfulness. And all of us start to believe that we need to be good enough because we desperately want to be good enough. We desperately want to be good enough to be loved by God. We strive for righteousness, which is good and right for us to try to put to death our sins and strive to live holy lives in light of God's kingdom. But the problem isn't so much our striving towards righteousness, but our belief that this striving towards righteousness will ultimately earn us joy. You see, the joy actually isn't at the end of the journey. We're not working for joy. We work because of the joy that we've already received. Jesus Christ brought us a joy that He Himself merited. He had what it took. Uh, he was the perfect Israelite. He was the perfect one of us. He perfectly fulfilled all of God's law, and yet he bore the punishment of the rest of us. What Jesus came to do was to see a people that are joyless and broken and oppressed and enslaved by their own sin, enslaved by those things in Romans 1 that keep them chained to the ground and keep them chained from experiencing true joy. And he said, I have broken the chains. And not only have I left you just with broken chains, I have given you my righteousness. The joy of the kingdom of heaven is yours already. Live it. Have you ever noticed that if Christians' motivations for why they strive for righteousness are reversed, you know, if, if we're working towards the joy, if we just think we can do enough righteousness in order to earn joy, uh, we tend to create a culture of fear and of isolation. We sound so zealous, don't we? I mean, we're like calling out the sins of people out there, and we're like, man, they're so awful, isn't it? Aren't we so grateful that we're not like them? Because we think that we're going to earn joy by being so much better. But Christians that find joy the way the Bible describes it as the motivation for why they strive for goodness create a culture of love, of joy, of peace. Not a culture that ostracizes and, and causes people to hide in their shame and brokenness but a people that point one another to Jesus, the one who covers all the shame and will make right all of the wrongs and will cause all things to be as they should. Of course, the good news of Christmas is that this joy that was created isn't dependent upon us at all. It was dependent upon a baby born in a manger that remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness 
to us. How do we know that God remembers us? He didn't send a messenger with a letter, although he has done that. He did send his word. He didn't send his prophets with oracles, though he has done that. And he doesn't send Zach here preaching to you, although he's in charge of that as well. We know that God remembers us in steadfast love and faithfulness because God himself came down and said, I am God and I have remembered you. I have removed the fear that you had of God away, the right fear because of your sin. I have paid for it, and I have given you my joy instead. You are mine, bought with a price. God himself being born in this Christmas story that we celebrate every year is the greatest declaration that God remembers us. Because what Jesus shows us is not only that he just remembered us like in his mind, Uh, It's also that he was willing to do something about it. He was willing to condescend to make it right. That he was willing to be born in such a low estate to be with us. If you remember the Advent candle reading, that prophecy from Isaiah said that God would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Jesus. No longer a promise on a page. No longer a promise with the voice of a prophet. God in the flesh. To help us fully understand why the nativity scene can cause such great joy for Christians, I figured that we would look at the joy of his mother, Mary. So, you know, Mary is the mother of Jesus. And before we get too far uh, into it, I'd just like you to consider her situation a little bit, uh, because I think sometimes we like fast forward through it, we've heard it a thousand times, but just like we'll slow down and just remember anew uh, the situation that Mary was in. Engaged to a blue collar man, uh, she's probably planning for a relatively simple life, probably young, uh, an older teen is most likely from what historical data can show us from what is normal in this culture and this time for engagements and marriage. Joseph seems like a good man. And in the midst of all of this kind of excitement of moving forward with the simple life, an angel appears and says, you found favor in the eyes of the Lord and you're going to have a baby. And Mary rightly responds, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel gives her an answer. And her response is, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then she breaks into song. What on earth does she have to sing about? Her life is about to get exceptionally difficult. Joseph, being a good man, will agree to divorce her quietly, um, bringing disrepute, shame to her household for the assumptions that will be made. Single parenting has never been easy. Nonetheless, uh, in a time where the, uh, crime, the, the punishment for unfaithfulness was stoning, what on earth is Mary singing about? What's amazing is how much her song is full of joy because of God's righteousness and God remembering his people. I'm going to read it for you. If you'd like to look at it later, it's in Luke chapter 1. This is Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. There's a lot of language in this song that overlaps with Psalm 98. God's strong right arm, God being the great actor of deliverance, the people responding in joy because of the great things that he has done. Mary says that she has joy because of the actions and deliverance of God judging righteously in equity, of scattering the proud, of bringing down the mighty. She rejoices because the salvation of the Lord is here, and she, by no power of her own, has been invited into the mighty things that God is doing. It seems that Mary understood what the angel was saying as salvation has come. The thing that will bring the deepest, most biblical, most powerful joy is coming. Because Jesus is the one who reveals righteousness, right? He is the God who does it. He made things right when he was here. He healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the leprous. He restored relationships. He declared woes on those who abused their power, and he promised that he will come back again to finish the judgment that he has started. He reveals righteousness. He's the righteous judge. But Jesus being the righteous judge would only cause us fear if he did not also remember us with steadfast love and faithfulness. And we've talked about it already, but how did Jesus embody this steadfast love and faithfulness? Because he looked at this people without any joy because of their unrighteousness. He paid the penalty for it and gave them the joy of his own righteousness. Unless we think this was easy for him. In the garden before he died, he's praying to God, and he says, God, if there's any way, please let this cup of judgment pass away from me. It was unbelievably costly. And Jesus said, but not my will, but yours be done. And what we see in Jesus is God himself remembering promises, ancient thousand-year-old promises to his people to restore them to who they were supposed to be. We taste this joy a little bit every week when we come and we confess our sins and we hear the beautiful words of the assurance of pardon. Because the assurance of pardon is is to make us sure that what Jesus has done is true. We actually do have peace with God. We no longer fear him like we once did because Jesus paid the cost. 
We no longer have to perform in order to earn joy because Jesus has already given us all of the joy. His righteousness has already earned it all. And he says, my kingdom is already here and it is yours. You see, many times we sin because we believe that we're going to be able to find more joy there. Uh, It will be more exciting. It will give us the things that we've always wanted. It protects what we've worked so hard for. But when we taste the true heavenly joy of forgiveness in Christ, we are quick to repent of these lesser joys and cling to the truest, deepest, most biblical joy of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We strive to live our lives according to his instructions because we are so sure that there is greater joy in his administration of the kingdom versus our administration. We can look at the world and we can say, man, I really think that this sin is better. And even though we don't understand it, if Jesus says that it is wrong, we can trust him with it because we said there's joy to be found there. Our very lives become joy. Even here and now as we get little tastes of forgiveness between one another, little tastes of true forgiveness in Christ in marriages, little tastes of forgiveness in Christ from parents to children, little tastes between children in these rooms as they're hard-hearted and foolish towards one another. That's joy at work. We aren't joyful because of injustice, and we aren't joyful because of our fear of God. And Jesus is the one who brings all of that joy. He's the one that will judge all of the injustice, the ones that make sure that we are remembered because he is at the right hand of God the Father right now interceding for us. I don't know if you ever thought about this imagery. Uh, A lot of times the right hand um, was the one that wielded the sword, Right? Um, and so it's the one that executes the judgment, the one that, that uh, declares things from the throne. And if Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, he's in the position to hold the hand, to remember us in that moment and say, paid for, being made right, member of my kingdom. Even now we get these little foretastes of joy, and we long for that day as we're in the middle of Advent and as we celebrate uh, Christmas that's coming up this week and remember the first time he came, we long for that day where he will come again and make the fullness of that joy present to us, where all wrongs will finally be righted, where we will see him face to face and know when we behold God face to face that there is no more fear because Jesus Christ has saved us. Amen? Now, uh, Jesus Christ not only came on Christmas as a baby, um, and, and uh, we're going to talk, you know, more about that uh, even as we, uh, next week, next Sunday, we talk about kind of the birth narrative of Jesus, and as Christmas Eve, we reflect a little bit on it as well. Um, he came to us this first time, right? Uh, but he left, and in that moment, I, I described it in, in Acts, when, right before he was about to ascend, uh, when he was going into heaven, and he said, don't worry, I'm coming back. Um, he had given them a list of things to do in remembrance of him. And this is one of these things. 
This table is one of these things that we do in remembrance of God's righteousness and God's love of us. What we're supposed to find here is a tangible reminder of who Jesus is towards us. Body broken, bloodshed, tasteable. He hasn't forgotten you. He remembers you. This is not our denomination's table. Uh, it's not Trinity Church's table. It's Jesus's table. And what I mean by that is, it's Jesus who serves you. Jesus who remembers. Jesus who says, you are mine. So when he told us to remember this, he told us also to remember the story. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name now give it to you. And he said, take this bread, eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. As I've said, this table is for those people who do know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who have uh, professed it and lived in that light and have been baptized uh, into his church and know that these promises are for them. And if you know that that is true, uh, then I invite you to come take and eat. If you're not sure about those promises, if you're not sure about what uh, Jesus said he did when he came um, in, in bodily form to rescue humanity, I'd ask you to refrain from this section of our service. There's a prayer in your bulletin that I invite you to pray through, uh, to reflect on what you've heard today and also think about what it means for God to come and be with us, for God to come and judge, and for God to come and remember us. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, uh, and there's two serving stations on my right and my left. Um, there is red wine, and there's also white grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. And there's also a gluten-free option. Please just ask your server about that as you come through. If you would, please pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for this reminder that you remember us, that you have not abandoned us, that you will bring justice and righteousness to bear on this earth, that one day all things will be made right. And in that day, we will not be forgotten. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to taste these promises as true today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.